Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. And the last time when I was on the air, I wasn't sure if I would be speaking with you all this weekend. But what do you know? Time is on my side and things have uh, worked out to where I am able to be uh, with you guys on the air this weekend. And what do you know? Tomorrow is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I'm a big Steelers fan, but unfortunately it just wasn't meant to be for the Steelers um, this season. But uh, hopefully one of these days uh, my Steelers will get back to the Super Bowl. But I certainly do hope that uh, tomorrow's game will be a good one, regardless of um, whether any of you out there who are ardent uh, 101 podcast listeners, if you all are Chiefs or Buccaneers fans, hope it's going to be a good game. So we are back um, with our focus on uh, Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation. So we're going to um, officially start with uh, part one of this uh, book, which is uh, titled The Murder. So our leadoff question uh, will be the following. When did George Wythe officially move to Richmond? I'll give you all a hint. Uh, was it um, was it after the American Revolutionary War itself had come to an end? Yes. Did he move to Richmond after the Constitution, or I should say after the United States Constitution itself uh, was signed uh, to where we had a new official government that replaced the existing one being that uh, fledgling Articles of Confederation? It turns out that uh, George Wythe um, was still residing in Williamsburg when uh, the Constitution itself was being debated and and ultimately signed um, into um, and ultimately signed in as being our new effective government. So the answer to the year that uh, George Wythe officially moves to Richmond is uh, 1791. And by the time 1791 comes around, George Wythe is about 65 years of age. Now, most people usually don't make it past the age of 50, or they make it just over age 50. 65 years of age at this point, 1791, that's considered old age. So Wythe moves to uh, Richmond at the age of 65. And what should I point out that's uh, unique about 1791. Well, when I think of 1791, in terms of the government, that just so happens to be the year that the Bill of Rights, being the nation's first 10 amendments to the Constitution, are um, are approved of. And, you know, without those uh, first 10 amendments, or what it, let, let alone a Bill of Rights, um, I kind of wonder um, where our government would have gone. Uh, especially when uh, the when I talked about the book uh, being founding rivals, uh, Madison versus Monroe, uh, the Bill of Rights in, the, in an election, in the election that saved uh, the nation. Um, there were uh, those in Congress, most notably the Federalists, who did not want um, a Bill of Rights put into play because they had they they had more other pressing issues to uh, to discuss that they felt took greater precedent than a Bill of Rights. Well, what do you know? Um, can any of you tell me um, what are some of those uh, amendments 
or listings of um, freedoms that fall under the Bill of Rights? Well, when I think of those freedoms, I think of free speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble, petition, the right to keep and bear arms, uh, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures, uh, the right to be free from uh, self-incrimination, or should I say double jeopardy, uh, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, um, to powers reserved to the states. So those are just some uh, some of the examples that I um, often think about when it comes to the uh, Bill of Rights and the first ten amendments. So the bottom line is, is that it's not so much George Wythe moves to Richmond in 1791, but we should also be reminded that, that's, that 1791 is a big um, landmark year for Congress and that... Um, the Bill of Rights, as we know, the first ten amendments to the uh, Constitution are put into effect. So, where does with what kind of a home does with reside in? He resides in a uh, two-story home located on the southeast corner of Fifth and Grace Streets. His home is near the top of a hill. Well. Is it fair to say that if his house is on the top of a hill, or near the top of a hill, would you say that his house is very elegant, or I should say attractive? Absolutely. It was located on the edge of a square surrounded by other fine homes that um, also included the city's mayor, being Mr. William Duval. The neighborhood wherewith resides is also home to prominent lawyers, physicians, politicians, to merchants. So this is where all the big gurus uh, reside. And um, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, well, what is the name of this neighborhood? Or um, let alone, what do you call it? We, we, in today's time, we would call it like a suburb. But what um, what's the name of the neighborhood that with, as well as other um well-to-do people uh, resided. It was a neighborhood known as Shaco Hill. Now, given that, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, uh, Virginia has been home to three capitals, the first two being Jamestown, which is from 1607 to 1699, and Williamsburg, 1699 to 1780. Now, Williamsburg had been the cap. Virginia's capital, obviously, up until 1780. But when did Richmond get first laid out? Well, Richmond was first laid out after George Wythe was born. George Wythe was born in 1726, but it would be in the year 1737 that that Richmond was first laid out, and it was um, laid out by a fella whose name was William Byrd II. I should point out that the Byrd family is in a very special group of Virginia families who um, are going to become dominant and probably are already dominant, not just in 1737, but onward, uh, dominant families who uh, control lots of land, they are uh, very well-respected people in their community. So, besides the Bird family, we have we're also talking about the Carters, the Randolphs, the Custises, the Parks, uh, the Lee family. 
when I think of those families, along with the birds, when I think of those families, they are the um, most powerful of families that pretty much run uh, Virginia politics. Not just Virginia politics, but, but all the land. They are some of your most well-to-do people who are a part of the Anglican Church vestry. And they are also, when I say government, uh, let alone I should say the House of Burgesses. So, uh, yes, William Byrd II is the first to uh, go about getting the city of Richmond laid out. But it wouldn't be um, till another five years, until 1742, when Richmond became incorporated as a town. Now, I should point out how Richmond got its name. William Byrd II uh, named Richmond after an English town of Richmond located near London, where he was originally from. Here's another question for you all. When Mr. Whiff moved to Richmond, was he still regarded as someone of prominent status? I would hope so. If there are people out there who, didn't, who don't think he would have been considered someone to be of prominent status um, despite moving, I would say something's not right with those individuals. But the answer is yes. When he moves to Richmond, he is still highly regarded. How so? Well... He was one of a few handful of survivors still living whom signed the Declaration of Independence to serving as, as a head architect behind the U.S. Constitution. He was well-beloved by all middle-aged men whom fought in the American Revolution. And amongst the students he taught, those students also thought very highly of him as well. Well, George Wythe doesn't miss out on a whole lot. And I can provide one example. Well, I did mention the fact from the um, introduction the previous night that uh, he was a product of the Enlightenment era, where men during this time um, are coming up with their own reasons and thoughts. They're trying to, um, what do you call it, reverse course, where institutions higher up had always said that... Um, had said that uh, something was always the way it had been before and it would remain that way until the end of time. But, of course, men in the Enlightenment are coming to different conclusions and saying, hey, this is no longer uh, valid. It's null and void. We have found new reasonings behind why uh, something works the way it does. So with as a part of that Enlightenment and the students he teaches or, you know, I should say law students, he wants them to be a part of their own um, enlightenment. He wants them to, he wants his students to expand beyond their uh, original horizons. So, uh, what does make with unique? Well, if I could point out one thing that makes him unique, it would be the following. The man himself spoke five languages two of which he mastered as a teenager, being Greek and Latin. Well, when you do go off to college, especially William and Mary, like Thomas Jefferson, it is going to be required that you um, learn a language. And in some instances, you can learn more than one language. Thomas Jefferson himself studied the classics, Greek and Latin. So when you go off to college... You are expected to get not just a good education in where you want to study, but a true liberal arts education.
Now, just before 1780, when the capital relocated to Richmond, what high honor was bestowed upon Mr. Wythe in 1778? I'll tell you here in a second. Well, in 1778, George Wythe would be named one of three judges to Virginia's Chancery Court. You know, we all know that there are different uh, types of courts. There are um, appeals court systems. You have the um, you have what are called juris. You know, they're basically jurisdictions. You know, different um, different levels of um, court cases or different types of um, hearings and all that. So basically, the Chancery Court is the state's highest court for civil matters. With would become Chief Justice on the Virginia Chancery Court in 1789, it would remain committed to the position into 1806. Now, how, how ironic that when Wythe becomes Chief Justice of the Virginia Chancery Court in 1789, that our nation's first president is inaugurated, George Washington. So, uh, two Virginians having uh, big milestones, with being Chief Justice on the Virginia Chancery Court in that year, George Washington becoming our nation's first president. Now, given George Wythe is America's first law professor, and he has obviously taught Thomas Jefferson law, and Jefferson has studied under him, did Wythe have an opportunity from President George Washington to become one of the first justices on the United States Supreme Court? Yes, he did. He also had the same opportunity to do so for the Virginia State Supreme Court. But he turned down the offers due to age and other health-related matters. I do personally believe George Wythe would have made a great justice on the United States Supreme Court. But it, would not, it wouldn't be much longer until another Virginian came along and would become the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in 1801, and he would remain in that position until his death in 1835, and that was uh, John Marshall. It turns out that John Marshall was one of George Wythe's students, and it also turns out that Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall were cousins. They were cousins um, on their mother's side. And I should also point out, too, that Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall um, were bitterly divided uh, politic based off of their political ideologies. John Marshall was a Federalist. Thomas Jefferson was the opposite. Um, so if you ever read any books on John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson, you can get a, a real good understanding of where they stood on uh, judicial, not just so much when it came to the judiciary system, but their political ideologies. But anyways, back on track, that, um, that yes, Wythe did have an opportunity to um, be on the United States Supreme Court, and I do believe that he would have made a terrific uh, judge. But at the same time, uh, he still had a great calling to be on the Chancery Court and also to... Um, mold the minds of uh, young men who would um, who would become leaders of their generation. I should also uh, mention another uh, person whom George Wythe did not teach, but he met. He met this fella in Philadelphia. This fella was from up north. 
and he would become good friends with Thomas Jefferson. As a matter of fact, he was the one that told, encouraged Thomas Jefferson to write the Declaration, not just write the Declaration of Independence, but he should be the author of it. This fella told Jefferson that he was a Virginian, and that a Virginian himself ought to be the one to do it. This fellow even went as far as saying that I am obnoxious, I'm loud, I'm boisterous, and most people would not want someone writing the Declaration of Independence, who is all of those um, characteristics. That person was Mr. John Adams, whom had the um, fortunate opportunity to meet George, Wa George Wythe in person, and both men met at the first... Um, Second Continental Congress in May of 1775 in Philadelphia. I will say this, though. John Adams did not like many Southerners. I could see how um, men from Massachusetts meeting men from South Carolina would seem to be, how do you call it? They would seem to be labeled the odd couple. However, historians do know that John Adams did establish... Um, a good uh, working relationship with the South Carolina delegates, most notably um, Arthur Middleton, uh, who was um, the uh, as well as Thomas Hayward, but Arthur Middleton especially. But John Adams and George Wythe really struck it up well. As a matter of fact, Mr. Adams himself, given that Mr. Adams was not a big fan of many Southerners, Bruce Chadwick did point out that when he met George Wythe, it really was a game changer. How so? Because John Adams viewed him as someone of high intelligence. So, hey, I think it's fair to say that that while Adams, you know, okay, maybe he's not the biggest fan of Southerners, at the same time, he can, we know that he found some Southerners who he did like, George Wythe and Thomas Jefferson and perhaps Arthur Middleton of South Carolina. I think this is this should be also pointed out I should also point out here that this is a good example of where we should not burn bridges. And, of course, when the delegates came to Philadelphia from north and south, as well as middle colonies, they all had to, you know, compromise. They all had to uh, work together to find common ground, even when some matters they were totally polarized on. And I think a lot of our politicians in today's 21st century time could learn a lot of 101 lessons on compromising. So, now we're going to get into the heart of, of our intro to part one, the murder here. What day, date, and month will serve as relevant significance in the year of 1806? Sunday, May 25th. So, Let's be prepared to learn a little bit more about May 25th of 1806. Hang tight here. Here we go. Many of us as individuals are best described as creatures of habit. Is that a good thing? It can be. But can some see it as a bad thing to those who are creatures of habit? Perhaps so, but it all depends on the circumstances at hand. Did the same thing apply to George Wythe? 
Yes. Like every other morning, the morning of May 25th, or should I say Sunday, May 25th, 1806, was the same when it came to daily routine rituals. How so for Mr. Wythe? After getting out of bed, he would go outside and make his way past various posts, or let alone buildings, on his property to arrive at, a, at the well where he would obtain cold water for shower purposes. The majority of his Sunday mornings before breakfast, Mr. Wythe read the city's newspapers. So in other words, he wanted to know what was going on and by learning what was going on or just, you know, finding out what's going on, he's got a better uh, idea of what the news is entailed. And if he himself should, uh, you know, be prepared to, um, you know, hear of a case that um, that may not be civil related, but a case that could have potential to be civil related. What else do you think he could be reading in the newspapers? Well, he could be reading uh, articles on uh, slaves that um, ran away from their masters. And I will tell you all this: in the early, in the, throughout most of the 18th century and even into the early 19th century, there was crime. But if there was one type of crime that was seldomly heard of, it was murder. The, usually your typical crimes were theft, and we're not just talking theft of, like, say, stealing someone's um, tools, for example, but usually horse theft was the biggest crime. I've mentioned it before from other uh, topics, but when uh, when someone stole another person's horse, that was like stealing a man's livelihood. We must remember that, you know, we don't have modern-day um, conveniences like an automobile. So if someone owned a horse, that was a very uh, valuable possession. A horse can get you from point A to point B very quickly. But when someone stole another man's horse, um, that was definitely what you would call uh, big news to report. So more often than not... Mr. Wythe would have uh, been reading in the newspapers about various kinds of uh, theft. Now, I should point out, too, that there was um, nearly two weeks before um, May the 25th of uh, 1806, an incident did occur in um, Virginia, and I should say that it, that it occurred, I believe, in the western part of the state, but a murder did take place, and it um, it was a shocking one. A fellow by the name of Abel Clements, who was a farmer, had used two axes to bludgeon his wife and eight children to, to death. Now, you know, it's one thing for, for um, one man to die as another if it, was, if it involved dueling. Because dueling truly was a gentleman's sport, and it was often a way to resolve to resolve family conflicts. But to but for a man to murder his wife and children, that was totally shocking. More often than not, when when people died in a family, it was often because of a disease related, not murder, but murder was shocking, stunning, and frightening.
I think it's fair to say that uh, Mr. Abel Clements was hung for his death. Was hung, rather, I should say, for having committed such a horrible atrocity. And I should also point out, not to get off track, but I, I should point out, though, that um, that even um, murder itself in the 18th and 19th century was very different in terms of its interpretation compared to uh, today's time. You know, it was one thing to, you know, kill someone, but if you killed your entire family, that truly was murder onto itself. Another term I can uh, refer to that was uh, different in the 18th century compared to, the, to today's world is the term massacre. When I think of massacre in the 18th century, I think of the Boston Massacre, where five people uh, lost their lives on the night of March 5th, 1770. But when I think of massacre in today's time, we, we think of you know 10 or more people dying in a particular setting from gun-related violence. So let's just keep in mind that uh, when someone was murdered in the 18th or 19th century, it didn't have the same meaning as it does in today's uh, unstable world. So now we're going to talk about uh, the two um, individuals who lived with Mr. With. And one of them, has Mr. With has known for some time, her name is Lydia Broadnax. And another fellow by the name of uh, Michael Brown, who is 16 years old. Now, was Lydia Broadnax an enslaved member of the Wythe household? Yes. Records of her first appear in 1783. But she and, and a handful of other uh, servants had worked for Mr. Wythe. And before, about four years before he moves to Williamsburg in 1790, I mean to Richmond in 1791, while in Williamsburg in 1787, he freed Mrs. Miss Broadnax, and she joins him upon his move from Williamsburg to Richmond. Lydia became Wythe's personal servant, or I should say maid, and I'm sure many of you are wondering now, how old would she have been when she was uh, freed by Mr. Wythe? She was in her mid-40s. Historians believe that she was probably born somewhere uh, between 1740 40 or 1742. So she's been with Mr. With for some time, but she knows that Mr. With values her for all that she has done. And because of that, and also being uh, freed, why not stay with someone who has treated you with the utmost um, dignity and respect? I think, I think we're seeing a sign here that Mr. With has either already instituted uh, proposals for for gradual um, emancipation of slaves, or it could very well be that Mr. With himself does not like the institution of slavery and wants to see more done for uh, slaves so that they so that future generations will have better opportunities to succeed. Mr. With is uh, definitely um, thinking um, outside the box. And while, yes, Virginia is one of those states that's still heavily dependent upon this practice, there are those who are against it, but yet they struggle with how to 
end the practice. They also struggle with how, with how uh, the matter itself will be resolved come future generations down the road. Even Thomas Jefferson himself will struggle with this issue up until he dies in 1826. So yes, Lydia Broadnax is a very, very faithful servant of Mr. Wythe's. The other fellow is Michael Brown, who is 16 years old, and he is a member of Wythe's household in Richmond. And Mr. Wythe tutors young Michael in various subjects that range from Latin, Greek, and math. He is first reported in Mr. Wythe's will around April of 1803. Now, does Mr. Wythe have, sib have siblings? He had an older sister and a brother, but his brother uh, passed away back in the 1750s. So it turns out that his only surviving sibling is his sister, being Anne Wythe Sweeney. Anne's grandson is George Wythe Sweeney, whom was named in honor of his great-uncle, well, so far, um, I'm sure many of you are wondering, because I did mention about briefly about George with Sweeney in the introduction. What do we, so far, if any of you all are wondering what I might be able to share with you all about him at this moment, I'll be more than happy to do so. Okay. George with Sweeney was not liked by many people, and he was always into some, into some form of trouble. It's fair to say that he's probably always the wrong person. He's always at the wrong place at the wrong time. It's also fair to say that young George Wythe Sweeney is the black sheep of the Wythe family. What is, the bla what is black sheep? Yes, there are sheep out there, creatures that are black, that have, um, what do you call it, black wool. But when we think of black sheep in terms of family, it is usually the odd member whom always has a knack for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, along with displaying constant defiance, displaying improper uh, conduct, always, what do you call it, always being the recluse or, or being the one who doesn't care about his or her actions and how they impact the rest of the family. I used to think sometimes that uh, even in colonial times that families were more stable. Well, that probably well, it is true that that there were many families who were stable, but I think it's also fair to say, and from what I've learned, that there were family problems even in colonial times. But family issues have been around since the beginning of time, and unfortunately, they will still be that way probably until the end of time. But Conflict was nothing um, new in this day in, in the 18th century. I should also point out, too, that George Wythe, as a judge, has seen it all. And given that each family member has, a, has someone in their family who is labeled the black sheep, Mr. Wythe did firmly believe that his grandnephew still had potential to turn his life around. How so? Well, as I said a moment ago, Wythe has seen everything in the court system, but he had seen plenty of young men just like his grandnephew going through problems, 
But it turned out that many of these other people, young people that with Saul who were struggling, actually got their lives back on track for various reasons. However, as brilliant of a judge and as brilliant of a person as George Wythe was, if there was one mistake George Wythe failed, failed in, of course we can't we probably cannot put all the blame on him, but I do believe it's fair to say that George Wythe's, that George Wythe himself was too nice to his grandnephew. How so? Well, he had complete freedom in Wythe's home. He he lived with his great uncle, but at the same time, there was no structure provided to where the young fella chose to live under the same rules as everyone else. He came and went at any hour of the night or morning. He basically uh, did whatever pleased him. You know, if you want to be a good role model, you need to set good examples. On the other hand, you can be a good role model all you want. But it doesn't mean that the person whom you're trying to help oversee get better will want to follow in your footsteps. It's like that old saying, you can take a horse out to water, but it doesn't mean that the, that the horse it, itself is going to drink out of that water. So the same could be the, the same could apply to George Wythe Sweeney. Sure, the elder Wythe could have taken his grandnephew out to water and said, hey, you're here. Show me what you've got. Show me what you've learned. Show me how you have learned from bad, from bad choices in the past and how you can move forward. Do you think his grandnephew would have done it? No. No. So this is also where free will sets into play. You know, free will is a good thing. It's also a bad thing. So I'm sure many of you are wondering, well, George Wythe Sweeney's parents, sounds like they shouldn't have been parents. Perhaps so. But hey, as my father once said, you can't fix stupidity. In other words, avoid, avoid it, but just don't be like those who make bad choices all the time and don't care about the ramifications impacting everyone else around them. So, before and by 1806, Richmond, Virginia, I should point out, and, and I will talk more about this in another podcast, but I should point out that Richmond, Virginia, before and by 1806, a fair number of freed African Americans were living in the city. And Lydia Broadnax is one of those um, fair number of freed African Americans who, whom has already made her mark or place, let alone for the last 15 years. And she really did like being by uh, Mr. With's side in, the, in his later years. Because George Wythe is a widower. He, and I will talk more as well in another later podcast about his wives. And he was very faithful to his wives, but he outlived both of them. So, now we're going to um, discuss in full detail about May 25th of 1806. We've already mentioned some of it, some of this date, but we're going to talk more. We're going to talk about the heart of this now. Where was George Wythe Sweeney on the morning of May 25th, 1806? Well, he is at his great-uncle's home 
He is waiting for breakfast to be served. However, he doesn't stay long. He, claim, he's, he claims that he has to go somewhere. He helped himself to a cup of coffee. And we have to remember too, folks, that um, brewing coffee in the 19th century time is not the, it was not the same thing as, it, um, as we know how to uh, brew a pot of coffee in today's modern times. Matter of fact, when you go to Williamsburg, you can actually uh, watch um, how uh, coffee was brewed. It's a very uh, fascinating process. Uh, you take my my uh, interpretation of it is that uh, the um, docents will take a uh, stick and then they will put a uh, metal canister, or what appears to be like in the shape of a can, uh, like a jar canister, but it's this it's it's a metal uh, tin with holes and you put the beans inside the metal um, holder and you basically are twirling the um, the device over um, the fire to where the the coffee beans will roast and then once they are at that proper temperature then the rest of the process takes care of itself so that's how they went about roasting that's my 101 interpretation of how coffee was um, how uh, coffee beans were uh, roasted to where you would ultimately get them get it turned into a liquid for consumption so this young George with Sweeney um, went about helping himself to a cup of coffee but then he goes about tossing a small piece of white paper into the fire Lydia Broadneck saw the piece of paper thrown into the fire but little did she know what was about to transpire now this is where we get into the um, into the real um, mess that's going to uh, take place that's going to change people's lives forever. Mrs. Broadnecks bring well, Miss Broadnecks brings up uh, Mr. With's breakfast to him. With loved to eat poached eggs, um, various assortments of uh, breads, along with coffee along with drinking coffee. So, after she serves him his breakfast, she goes back down to the kitchen and pours herself coffee from the pot. Michael Brown is down there at the same time, and he consumes multiple cups. Within minutes, or a short time, each one of these, each one of Michael Brown and Lydia Broadnecks endure crippling pain in their stomachs, which leads to spasms never experienced before. And these spasms also lead to convulsions. They lead to difficulty with breathing, difficulty even with um, with eye vision. It's the it's powerful. So, are can we say now that Lydia Broadnecks and Michael Brown have been poisoned? I would say so. I mean, people don't just start having crippling pain out of nowhere. Sure, you can pull a muscle. But that pain goes away um, very shortly. What about uh, for George Wythe? Well, it wouldn't take long until Mr. Wythe himself endured throbbing pains and throughout his abdomen and chest, which included having a seizure as well as um, vomiting. Now I know all that I know the vomiting part folks doesn't sound pleasant but 
that's what was described in, in the notes that, um, or should I say in the book, in this book, that's how, that's what Bruce Chadwick describes it as, you know, that he was vomiting, uh, Mr. With had a seizure, he had throbbing pains throughout his body, but what I'm, what I was most blown away by was that considering how much pain he endured, he still managed to make it down the stairs, but at a very slow pace. But when he made it down the stairs, he found Michael Brown in his chair, unconscious. He saw Lydia Broadnax alive, but clinging on to dear life. Mr. Wythe did mention to Miss Broadnax that to get the doctor. Well, remember, folks, we don't have a telephone. The telephone won't be invented until uh, after the Civil War. So we don't have a way to get 911, um, a 911 response right away. But the doctor did arrive, as well as a friend who happened to be a lawyer. What did George Wythe profess to his physician, as well as the friend whom was a lawyer? I am murdered. I was blown away when I first read this book, and I, I was really blown away that Mr. Wythe still had enough in him to be able to muster what he said. It, it's a miracle at this point that he's even alive still. So I, I believe it is very fair to say that Mr. Wythe, Lydia Broadnax, and Michael Brown have all been poisoned. I think it's fair to say that we all know who did po who who was responsible for it, and we're going to find out more about that in the next upcoming podcast. But, but for Mr. Wythe to to be able to muster the courage to say I'm murdered, what does that mean? That someone's trying to kill him. That someone's out to get him. That someone simply does not like him. That someone out there must be jealous of him. Someone must have something against him that they're hiding from because, they, because what they want to do is just flat out get revenge on this guy. But as I, as I said from the previous podcast... And even from the book I read, uh, Signing Their Lives Away, for those of you who remember that one, uh, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence, I mentioned about George Wythe when discussing about Virginia. The same question was said. Whom would want to, whom would want to harm this fella? Sometimes, uh, more often than not, it's not the outsiders. It's from within. And history has shown that uh, when people have died mysteriously, it's often from within. So, I am murdered is the answer that Mr. Wythe gives. And it's a very powerful one. Because he knows that what happened was not an isolated incident. He knows that it was not accidental. He knows that it was deliberate and intentional because he had never experienced anything like this before. He knew, uh, even before this happened, that he was beloved by so many. So this does come as a shock. It would come as a shock to anyone, regardless of their stature. But for him, this is a big deal. 
and he knows that Lydia Broadnecks would never do anything to harm him. He knows that Michael Brown, his student, whom he wants to see have a bright future, would not do anything so heinous and despicable. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again. And let's think long and hard about whom is responsible for what has just happened. Because, as we all know, we can't take life for granted, but we also don't know what can happen in a short period of time where life does change so radically that it's not for the better. Well, thank you, and uh, for for those of you who are football fans, enjoy uh, tomorrow's uh, Super Bowl. And for those of you who aren't, that's okay, because there's more to life than just watching football. But I look forward to being back on the air again, and um, and we will have more to discuss uh, with Mr. With. But I can promise you this much: Part One is not confined to just um, it's not confined to just um, the murder in terms of uh, who killed who or or what the um, forensics what the forensics report of the 19th century says where we will eventually learn about how Thomas Jefferson and George Wythe reshape Virginia and how they met one another when Jefferson was a student at William and Mary but in order to understand the past we also must learn about the present and how Mr. Wythe's and about how May 25th, 1806, it turns out that was something that just didn't happen overnight. There were some other events that transpired years before 1806 that ultimately led to the present and how, and how a piece of legislation, when Jefferson was governor, uh, with saw it as something that was for the right reasons, but little did he know that it would impact him for the opposite reasons. History often has a way of um, often has a way of presenting something that looks good at first, but over time it will lose its luster. And it's not so much from an economic point of view, but it's also from a personal um, perspective. So um, thank you again for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again. Take care and stay safe.